Good morning. If you have your Bibles handy, would you open those to Song of Songs, chapter 7. We'll be reading through the first nine verses this morning. Song of Songs, chapter 7. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, prince's daughter. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat surrounded with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Revan. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and the flowing hair of your head is like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree, I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning as we gather here, Lord, would you once again open our hearts to your word? Lord, would you help us, Father, by your Holy Spirit, to take what you have given to us in the inspired word and use it, Lord, for your glory and your praise, bring fruitfulness to your people. Lord, we ask that Christ would be exalted here among us, that His name would be rightly adored and honored. Father, I pray that if there are any here without Christ yet, that You would be drawing them to Yourself. I ask for grace, Lord, this morning, as the one communicating Your Word. I pray that the words I speak would would be true you would use them, Lord. We pray all of these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Reading from some commentary by Charles Spurgeon on the text here at hand. The Lord has said concerning every one of His people, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in Thee. Why now? I am all covered over with spots and blemishes, you say, and no beauty. But the Lord Jesus Christ has washed you with His blood and covered you with His righteousness. Do you think He can see any imperfection in that? 
You are members of His body united to Him. In Christ, you are without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You are all spots in yourself, but He sees you as He intends to make you before He has done with you. And He can discern unspeakable beauties in you. Oh, you say, does He think that? Surely then, I see unspeakable beauties in Him. His love to me opens my eyes to see how dear a one He must be. Is He enamored of me? Has He given His whole heart to me? Did He prove His love to to me by bleeding on the cross? Oh then, I must love Him if He will but let me. Shall such a poor worm as I love infinite perfection? Oh yes, I must, since infinite perfection deigns to love me, and since the Son of Righteousness in all His glory deigns to shine on my soul. So, for those of you here with us this morning that have not been here throughout this series, I favor the approach which was common in the church uh, throughout the ages until really the last couple of hundred years. That this book, the Song of Songs, that's its traditional title, the Song Above All Songs, was actually an allegory written by Solomon in poetic form describing the mutual covenant love between God and Israel. And that love was fulfilled by Christ and the church. And as such, it is a book, therefore, that can be applied both corporately to the church and also to the individual believer. So the theme that I've proposed for the book is this. There is a mutual love between Christ and His bride that is stronger than death, a divine flame that will never be quenched. So we are today continuing in the fourth and consequently the longest section of the five sections of this book. The theme for this particular section I've proposed as this. The church is at times a slumbering bride whose delayed response affects a time of spiritual languish, but will be brought again to a restoration in Christ's love. So by way of review, and Rory read for us from the beginning of the section up until the point which I read then for us. The scene opened in chapter 5, verse 2, with the slumbering bride who's too lethargic to get up and answer the door of the visiting groom. By the time she finally does rouse herself, the groom has departed, and so she wanders out into the streets searching desperately for him, but without any success. And then, to further the aggravation of her loss, the watchmen find her, and they beat her, They strip her of her shawl and of her veil, having drawn wrong conclusions about her intentions. And then, from there, the scene shifted to the bride calling upon the daughters of Jerusalem that they would help her to find her beloved. And they respond with this inquiry about why it is that she should so desperately be searching for him. And this prompts her to a response of both what he is to her and then where he is to be found. And with this answer, we see sort of a change that her distress begins to dissolve and her assurance of his love begins to return. Then last week, 
the groom suddenly appears again and he begins to speak, communicating to his bride that she is still beautiful in his eyes and that she excels all other rivals. And then was the bride taken up as with a speeding chariot and raptured again in the love of the groom. And here is where our text picks up once again this morning. So, by way of overview this morning, I have really just two points and then some application. The first point, extolling the bride's beauty in verses 1 through 5. And then secondly, gratified by her love in verses 6 through 9. My message this morning, I think, will be a little bit shorter than perhaps typical. And so I want to just take a few moments before jumping into the text and make some brief comments about the subject matter at hand. Let me be frank with you in saying that notwithstanding the reasons that I provided last week in support of why I have chosen to approach this book from the allegorical perspective, the task of preparing a presentable sermon this week has been a struggle. And some of that may be owing to some of the personal circumstances in my life right now. There's a lot of busyness surrounding me. But I think part of this is really due to the particular content of the passage at hand and also the repetitive nature of the material that we've been covering. But alas, I am a proponent of systematic expository preaching and I am committed to what the Holy Spirit spoke through Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 when he said, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. As a matter of fact, expository preaching was actually the topic of our Ardios workshop that was held yesterday. We had Dr. Andrew Zeller from Sangre de Cristo Seminary come and present to us. And he gave those in attendance a free book entitled uh, Biblical Preaching, written by Haddon Robinson. I haven't had a chance to read the book, obviously. I just received it yesterday, but I did start thumbing through it. And as I did so, I was moved at just the dedication of the book, the, the opening page where you have, you know, to so-and-so. And this is what, this is what um, Haddon Robinson writes in his dedication. To the men and women who keep a sacred appointment on Sunday morning, bewildered by seductive voices, nursing wounds life has inflicted upon them, anxious about matters that do not matter, yet they come to listen for a clear word from God that speaks to their condition. That's us. And so may God help us all as we press on and we seek to know His mind and heart revealed to us through His word, even here in the Song of Songs. So first point, extolling the bride's beauty. So I want to begin, as I have throughout this book, in looking at the text for just some general observations. What do we see at the surface here? I want to make a few observations here in the first five verses. 
first of all, we see a continued affirmation. We, we see in our passage here the groom extolling the bride's beauty. Now, compliments passed between the bride and groom have, have been a recurring theme throughout the book. And here we have actually the third list of traits that the groom has posted, whereby he uses similes to describe various attributes about the bride that are perhaps at the surface physical features, but they appear to be given actually as representations of traits in her that he adores. So the first list was given clear back in chapter 4, and that occurred just after this first episode of separation that happened between the groom and bride. And then the second list was posted in chapter 6 following the second round of separation between the groom and bride, which I noted in the last message. And in this instance, the groom is returning to his bride and he's providing her with every assurance that his love for her has not waned. She is still very beautiful to him. And this third list then comes shortly after, marking now a restoration of their fellowship together as he continues to lavish his bride with various declarations of her surpassing beauty. And with this in view, I think its placement here in the present location is perhaps as significant, if not more so, than the actual descriptions themselves. Second observation, the order of the compliments. So as we look at this list of traits in verses 1 through 5 carefully, we begin to realize that the description starts with her feet, and then he, he progressively and systematically works upward to their head, to her head. This order, I don't believe to be coincidental, but rather a means of systematically surveying her beauty, which reflects the comprehensive nature, the totality of her beauty in his eyes. So, as an example, we often use the phrase from head to toe to describe something that is collective and comprehensive about a person. For instance, and this is, of course, just hypothetically speaking, I suppose my grandchildren Ezra and Evelyn have gone outside romping through the yard after rainfall. Well, upon returning to the house, they're likely to be denied immediate entrance into the home because they're now wet and muddy from head to toe, is how we would say that. There's no clean spot upon them. And so here we have sort of the opposite and in reverse. The bride is beautiful from toe to head. Third observation, there are ten traits noted. So back in chapter 5, the bride described ten traits of the groom. And so it seems that, sh- that he's not going to be outdone in the compliments. And I want to look briefly at each of these traits just to sort of survey their potential significance. And I say potential because even when we take these in their most simple form, even if we were not looking at this as an allegory, uh, there is a, a wide degree of speculation, um, as you might readily appre- appreciate if you were reading through a number of, of commentaries in regards to what is being communicated here to us. So I can't really be dogmatic on any of these points, nor would that be helpful without really staying focused, I believe, on the whole of the purpose behind this list. 
Nonetheless, just let's walk through this briefly and look at them. So the first two traits are her feet and her hips. So beginning in verse 1, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. So whereas we have been told that the Shulamite bride came from a very lowly means, there is something royal in the manner of her feet in sandals. And while she may actually have attractive footwear, I think the reference is likely designed to describe the manner of her carriage, and it's closely paired with the following trait regarding her hips. He writes, The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. So the Hebrew word translated, at least in the NASB, as curves, could likewise be translated sockets. In other words, her sockets are like jewels, perhaps meaning that her hips are beautifully and symmetrically secured into their sockets. For this reason, many have proposed that the design of this complement had more to do actually with the nature of her gait, the way that she walks, which was stately, graceful, because a hip out of socket would cause a a limp, a gimp, an imbalanced walk, an awkward gait. So I think by the description of her feet and her hips, we might surmise that he is saying that she walks with beautiful nobility and grace. And the next two traits are her navel and her belly. He says, Your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. So, describing someone's belly button as big as a big goblet and a tummy like a pile of grain may not seem very complimentary at first glance. And consequently, young men, I wouldn't hold this as a back pocket phrase to impress your future sweetheart. We perhaps need to dig a little bit deeper here. And of note, the opinions for interpretation are really quite broad on this point. The Hebrew word translated navel is actually a word related to the twisting of the umbilical cord. And while it could refer literally to the the belly button, as we might say, it also can be used as a reference to the body itself or the bodice of a dress, or quite simply, the waistline. And notice the two similes used for the navel and belly. It says, a goblet that never lacks mixed wine, a heap of wheat fenced with lilies. Perhaps, rather than to serve visual likenesses here in these similes, these are intended to provide a connection to joy associated with wine, which she's never lacking, and the blessing of a harvest of wheat, that is the generous provisions of God, and lilies surrounding it, which are symbols of love and renewal. So I'm not really sure about this, but perhaps we could generalize it all and say her body is inscribed with the blessings of God laced with love. Maybe that's a way we can summarize that. And then next we have her bosom. He says, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. So this is actually a repeated compliment from a previous list regarding her bosom, likened to a pair of fawns. And we can think of this in terms of beautiful symmetry or gentle serenity associated with this aspect of her physique. 
As a matter of fact, the, the simile is used in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 through 19, in speaking of a man's own wife. It says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. I think in a, in a deeper and perhaps a more significant way, we can appreciate that the breasts here are instruments of grace to bring delightful satisfaction to her spouse. And we also know also the nourishment and the comfort of the children that she has birthed. So perhaps we can say that she is beautiful in bestowing grace. Then we have her neck. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Well, this could be understand in its most basic sense of maybe a slender, long, white neck. Uh, we also know the neck is associated with one's posture, also with their, their will, their strength. And so metaphorically, a neck like an ivory tower would signify that she is elegant in dignity and valor. Her eyes, he says, your eyes like the pools of Heshbon by the gates of Bath, of Bath Rabbit. Most, most commentators see this as a reference to clear and placid waters that are reflecting light. And so, in essence, he's saying to her, your eyes reflect an inward disposition that is calm, bright, and clear. And then her nose. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which faces toward Damascus. Again, I would be cautious, young men, in using this line. It could be that she has a prominent and a well-situated nose, which might be considered a thing of beauty. But actually, the, the Hebrew word translated nose can also be translated face. And so I think when we couple this with the, uh, the, the former reference to the neck, the watchtower, this would cast the simile in a different direction, more symbolic perhaps, in reference to her alertness, uh, the ability to uh, uh, see and, and assess approaching dangers, her face being like a watchtower placed in a lofty place and an impregnable position. So the sense here would be then that she has keen discernment and bold determination. And finally, her head and her hair. He says, your head crowns you like Carmel, and the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. So Carmel was a well-watered mountain ridge along the Mediterranean Sea. It was lofty, fertile. It was regarded as a holy place, a symbol of beauty. So this simile is cast as a description of her, what we might say, beauty and nobility. And the, the flowing locks of purple threads would add to this same sort of idea. And that purple was uh, the, a very costly dye. It was associated with royalty. So in effect, he is saying that she is crowned with royal beauty. So having made these observations, I want to then just sort of take this all in and look at it through the lens of Christ. And I would summarize it this way. The bride of Christ, whom He has prepared for Himself, is beautiful in His eyes. The bride of Christ, 
whom he has prepared for himself is beautiful in his eyes. Christ has provided every assurance of his love for the bride and he shows himself ready to quickly embrace her without reservation even after the fact that she has faltered. She's had this period of of spiritual slothfulness and this languishing time. And yet, he sees her beautiful. And though her beauty is derived from the very grace that's been lavished upon her, through tender, the tender mercy of God, yet she is esteemed by the beloved Savior as splendid in beauty, in beauty from head to toe. I appreciate the remarks of George Burroughs in his excellent commentary on this book regarding this list of traits. He says, Now the Holy Spirit has grouped these things together for enabling us to get some idea of the beauty which shall be revealed in the saints and is already seen in them by Jesus. He does not merely say we are beautiful in His eyes, as is the highest development of female beauty to us, but taking the most beautiful human form, cluster around it all the ideas of splendor drawn from feet with magnificent sandals, the splendid curvature of the most finished necklaces, the golden goblet filled with fragrant wine, the heap of newly harvested wheat set about with lilies, the two young twin rows feeding among the lilies, the tower of ivory, the pools of Heshbon, the marble tower on a cliff of Lebanon looking towards Damascus, Carmel covered with flowers, the palm tree with its golden clusters. To these, add the light springing from the attractions of the most accomplished manners and a loving heart. When we can form an idea of the ecstasy thrilling the soul, as all these different objects pour their star-like radiance of beauty bright upon the heart, then and then only can we have some conception of the beauty, attractiveness, and loveliness seen in His redeemed and sanctified people by our adored Lord. As the eye turned towards the sun is dazzled and cannot take in the radiance, so the mind is dazzled with the beauty and unable fully to comprehend it. For the love of Christ passeth knowledge. Of that love, these brilliant comparisons are the illustration and nothing more. I think there is great truth here and seeing the whole list here as the primary point and the sum greater than its parts. So let me sort of summarize this string of beautiful pictures applied to how Christ views the bride that He Himself has prepared. She is the royal daughter, walking with beautiful nobility and grace, her body inscribed with the blessings of God and laced with love. She is endowed with the means of bestowing grace. She is elegant in dignity and valor, with eyes that are calm and bright, having keen discernment and bold determination. She is crowned with royal beauty. Now this thought here, as we sort of collect these things together, certainly matches what we find in Psalm 45 regarding the presentation of the bride to the king, which the author of Hebrews affirms as being a picture of Christ. We read, Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty, because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. 
The daughters of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins of companions who follow her will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. If the Lord has made certain that there is nothing lacking in the beauty and glory of His radiant bride that He has prepared for Himself. Second point this morning, gratified by her love, verses 6-9. through How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. So again, let's begin with some general observations here. First of all, the groom delights in the beauty of his bride. Verse 6 actually is, the, I believe, the centerpiece of the passage here this morning when he says, How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Now, this phrase uh, is actually repeating the, the first portion out of verse 1. How beautiful you are. But here we see the groom not only finds her beautiful, but he says he delights in her beauty. He's charmed by her. She is a source of great pleasure to him. So first observation, the groom delights in the beauty of his bride. Secondly, the groom longs to embrace her. He says, your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. So the palm tree is known for its elegance and it's often used, not only here in scripture, but in other oriental poetry as a symbol of love. And here the groom speaks of not just enjoying her beauty from a distance, but that he longs to take hold of his bride and to draw her near to himself, to embrace her tightly in her arms. And then that leads to the third point, which is this, or the third observation, the groom takes joy in her fruits. He says, Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and your fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. The reason the groom wants to embrace her is for the joy and the satisfaction that he finds in her fruits. That is, all the good products of her love that bring him pleasure. In other words, we see here how desperate the groom is to gather to himself the fruit of the bride's beauty and to deeply savor the offerings of her love, which are to be his and his alone. So let's look at this through the lens of Christ. We must, I think at this point here, bring to mind again God's design for the husband and wife relationship from the very beginning, which was intended as a tangible demonstration of the joyful and intimate union that he has with his people. This is what Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, 
But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And we see three aspects of this truth here in our text. First, that Christ delights in the beauty of His bride. So, I think it's important for us not to forget that the beauty of His bride is actually through the work of Christ Himself. We read this also in Ephesians chapter 5, Christ who loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Christ delights in the beauty of His bride because that beauty is bestowed upon her by Himself. Secondly, Christ loves to embrace His bride. In spite of her failings, in spite of what she once was, He's ready to gather her into His arms to draw her as near to Himself as He possibly can. And thirdly, Christ longs for the loving fruit of His bride. The pulpit commentary makes this observation. The palm and the vine are both employed in Scripture in close connection with the church. The righteous shall flourish as the palm tree. The vine brought out of Egypt and the vineyard of the Beloved and the true vine to which the Lord Jesus Christ compares Himself. Remind us that the illustration was perfectly familiar among the Jews. And we can scarcely doubt that the reference in this case would be understood. The Lord delighteth in those fruits of righteousness which come forth from the life and love of His people. They are the true adornment of the church. The people of God are never so beautiful in the eyes of their Savior as when they are covered with gifts and graces in their active expression in the world. Then it is that He Himself fills His church with His presence. This, I believe, leads us to our application. So last week, the application that I presented was this. Dwell deeply upon the steadfast love of Christ. Dwell deeply upon the steadfast love of Christ. This week I want to consider the progression of that application, which is this. Let His love cause our fruitfulness to flourish. Let His love cause our fruitfulness to flourish. Peter Masters, in commenting on the passage at hand, made this summary comment saying, this this description that we've been given here in these verses... This is a picture of the total consecration of the church to Christ. If He gives us gifts and graces, they are for Him. If He commends us for love, obedience, and service, we will all the more devote these things to Him. So, on the one hand, it might be said that our spiritual beauty rests entirely upon the finished work of Christ whereby in justification we have been clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. And certainly our sanctification is likewise a work of God through His Spirit and conforming us into the beauty of the image of the Son. And yet, 
we are also called into cooperation with him toward this end. We're giving, we have been given positive commands to engage in a life that is pleasing to the Lord. For instance, Paul says to the Colossians, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of life. Or Jesus Himself, who said, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be My disciples. You did not choose Me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And I believe that Scripture teaches the love of Jesus. And I don't mean that in some sort of vague, impersonal sense. But when we understand it being applied to us corporately, to us personally, that the love of Jesus has the power to transform us. Because it is at the very heart of God's grace. And it is for this reason that the woman who anointed the feet of Jesus with perfume was moved to this act of devotion because she had a clear apprehension of the grace of God, of the love of Christ. She had been forgiven much and therefore she loved much. John writes in his first epistle, chapter 4, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. When we come to a deep perception of how Jesus has loved us, and how He looks upon His redeemed bride, then shall our fruitfulness grow and flourish in every way through our lives of holiness and through our service that honors and glorifies Him. And so I want to close the message with one more quote from Charles Spurgeon. A Christian is never strong for service when he does not know whether Christ loves him or not? If that be a question, you have put out the fire by which alone the force can be generated, which must work the machinery of your spirit. You must know beyond question that Jesus loved you and gave himself for you. You must feel that he is loving you now, that his heart is looking out through those dear eyes which once wept over Jerusalem and that the meaning of his loving glance is, Soul, I love thee. I love thee so that I gave myself for thee and I have not repented of the gift. I love thee still as much as I love thee upon Calvary's bloody tree. It is strength to feel that still his desire is toward me. 
Oh, when you feel Jesus loves me. Jesus desires me to show my love to Him. Jesus at this moment thinks of me and takes delight in me. This will make you strong as a giant in the cause of your beloved. Between the very jaws of death, a man would venture who felt that the love of Christ was set upon him. Love to Jesus is the fountain of courage, the mother of self-denial, and the nurse of constancy. Strive then for a well-assured sense of the Savior's love. Be not content till you possess it, for it will be the health to your spirit and the marrow to your bones. It will be a girdle of strength to your loins and a chain of honor about your neck. May we dwell deeply on His love and may that love cause our fruitfulness to flourish. Let's close. Father, we desperately need, Lord, a keen awareness of Your love. Because Your love to us in Christ is truly Lord, born of your grace, your mercy. And without, Lord, a clear view to these things, we shall not be equipped to do anything that pleases you or brings glory and honor to your name. But Lord, if you would be pleased to enlarge our view, Father, will it not be as nourishment to us, Lord, so that the fruit will be born Lord, the fruit of your glory, that our lives would be decked in holiness and service. Lord, to the end that you receive glory in the Son. Father, we pray that you would do this for us. Lord, cause our hearts, Lord, to be filled with the love of Christ. We pray these things in his precious name. With that, I'll open it up if there are any corrections or questions or other words to edify from the men this morning. I've got, a, I've got so many questions, uh, but try to, trying to kind of narrow it all down. So Paul tells Timothy, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead to more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. That's after he talks to him about handling the word truth rightly. It obviously is, even though it might be very difficult to understand. There is a right interpretation of Song of Solomon, right? Um, and so I think there's all kinds of warnings throughout the New Testament against false teaching or in, you know, improper use of the Word of God. And I, I, you've reviewed and I remember you know, why you've chosen an allegorical sense, but can you just speak to some of what are the dangers or the risks that you feel might be associated with either a purely literal view interpretation or, you know, I mean, even like I, where I land right now just transparently is like, okay, David said things about himself that technically were completely untrue at the time he said them, right? But they were prophetically or poetically true of his intent or his heart or of what was coming in Christ. 
And, and so I, I look at Song of Solomon and I go, why can't that be the same thing? But what are the, yep. what are the risks or dangers that you would warn us to be on guard for or looking for in interpreting this other than the allegorical view that you've done? Well, I, that's a good question. And is there benefit in looking at and thinking about contemplating the goodness of God's design in a marital relationship between a husband and wife and absolutely there is and so we don't want to in any way diminish that by taking an allegorical approach that exalts Christ as the fulfillment of these words or as I would see it as the intent of what's given here Um, just to interject it really wouldn't be contradictory because that's what Paul does when he lays out in 5 so I listened to a message that Paul Washer gave out of the Song of Songs. I was curious what, what his thoughts were. And, and he, would, he would approach it in a similar way that I have been. And he made this comment. He prefaced this by saying, you know, people argue that it's, it's, this is an ideal. It's about the relationship between a man and a woman. And he, went, he goes through this thing and he says, but I would say to you, and so let's say you're right. And what is the point of that? Scripture tells us what the point of that is. It points us towards Christ and the church. So we end up in the same place, <laughs> which it, it always needs to. And I think the danger then, and what I'm aware of, which seems to be the modern approach, is to, to just... And I even got a book that was supposed to be a Christ-centered view, and he spends 99% of the time making his applications toward a marital relationship and having a good sex life. And then he'll make some off remark about, and this pertains to Christ and the church in this sort of way. You know, and I, and I, I think while that is good, there's goodness there, I am thoroughly convinced, and I believe Scripture itself testifies that this book is all about Christ. And if we, if we squeeze Christ out of it so where he has hardly any part in it, then I, I think we have to be missing the intent that the Spirit of God had, if that makes sense. And so there is a, the hazard would be to just only take it to that view and not see beyond it anything that relates, that points us back to Christ. Does that make sense? And I don't know if that answers your question entirely. Yeah, well, that helps a lot. So I, I've been... When you bring up Song of Solomon and you listen to sermons, okay, you get a lot of, of great relational stuff. But, and I appreciate your direction, and I think it's the right direction, because what good is an allegory if the allegory doesn't come from something that's real? Yeah, right. So the relationship between a husband and wife is something we can relate to to make it real. What, what goes wrong if you go from the relationship of husband and wife to say, oh, that's Christ and the church, then this flawed relationship, not ours, somebody else's, the flawed relationship becomes the view of Christ and the church. And I think that's what the church has done. If you look at this the other direction, there would never be a divorce in the church because I would serve my wife the way Christ serves the church. And she would have a desire and passion for me the way we should have a desire and passion for Christ. And so it is both. But we have to go from the perfect relationship and say, how do I apply that 
Because Christ, because this is applying it in Song of Solomon. Right. How do I apply that here to make this relationship right? Looking at the perfect relationship coming down. It would be a real sorry thing to read through, as I, I think I said this in the introduction, to read through uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and then spend our time talking about hazards of, of, of traveling on foot to a foreign land. <laughs> right? No, one other thing, because I listened to this, and I was waiting to see how you got to the navel. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, and, and this, take this for what, what, what you will, it, it did some good for me, because doing some research on that, is that it's a goblet, and the goblet is, drink, is full of drink, all right? So that means it is actually, are you going to blush? It's actually intoxicated. So, as a husband, if you do not find your wife intoxicating, if it is not your focus, then you need to work on your job. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll hand it over to you. <laughs>